The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hold it. One, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Welcome back to Short Hops and Tall Tales, a pictureless podcast highlighting the weird, funny, and bizarre elements and stories of baseball that really make America's pastime special. I'm once again Noah Scott, and I'm joined by the magnificent Brandon Riddle, and we are excited to bring you another episode just packed with cool baseball stories. So, weird <laughs> pause for today. <laughs> for today. Uh, See, we've that, gotta- that's usually the moment I would jump in and say something kind of witty, but I just wasn't feeling it. So I let you kind gonna- of pause in the awkward silence there. I'm just going to I'm I'm going to leave all of this in too. Um so, uh Brandon, what do we have going on today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, today we have um a couple of things we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about the former player Tuffy Rhodes, if you remember him. Um the pickle jar of course with one of those baseball idioms. Uh we're going to talk Doc Ellis as well, the infamous LSD no-no, but also, you know, what else did he do with his career? He actually had a really odd career, interesting as well. And then, of course, if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about minor league stadiums. Yeah, that covers it. Um, And if you are unfamiliar with a couple of those names, well, strap in and uh, you're going to find out. You're going to learn some stuff today. A super cool episode. But (laughs) let's kick it off. Let's kick it off with our, you know, our warm up trivia question. And uh, Brandon, I'm seeing it here. It says, which major league team did Babe Ruth originally sign with in 1914? Now, do you know the answer to this or did you just... Or, or 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 no? I I do, I do know the answer. Okay, so so it's I do know me. it's kind of an odd answer. So I figured I'd loft it up to you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, my knowledge of baseball history obviously started his career with the Red Sox before being traded to the Yankees or sold to the Yankees rather in that infamous deal to fund a a play. Um, now I feel like you're gonna twist mm-hmm. it on me though, and I feel like he didn't originally sign with the Red Sox. You're smiling. He did not originally sound with the Red Sox. Okay. Right. <laughs> that's right. the same process as I went through as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Babe Ruth uh, actually signed with the Baltimore Orioles, Orioles in 1914. Oreos? <laughs> um, he, 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 or, Oreos, yeah. <laughs> he signed with them as an 18-year-old kid coming straight out of school. Um, and he played about half a season with the minor league team. But the Orioles, it wasn't the Orioles we know. 
Um, it was an earlier version of Baltimore, uh, whereas in 1915, they actually folded the league, the, the team completely. Uh, so it was the original Orioles. And when it, the owner kind of figured out that they cannot compete with a new federal league that just showed up, the attendance was dwindling, they weren't making money. He had to sell off the players and that included selling Babe Ruth to the Boston Red Sox for $25,000 along with two other players. Wow. So, yeah. so that's, that's pretty cool because I feel like, yeah. you know, on a surface level, maybe not everyone, unless you're, you know, like a baseball fan, you might not know that he actually started with the Red Sox, but I had no idea he, it goes even further back than that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and also the owner offered Babe Ruth to Connie Mack with the uh, athletics first, but Connie Mack didn't have the funds either because he was also hurting <laughs> from the federal league. So it was the Red Sox, the team that could take him. And there we go. The rest that's super is history. Yeah, I like those little, you know, you know, what if he ends up signing with Connie Mack? You know, the, just thinking about the butterfly effect uh, throughout mm-hmm. history is pretty cool. I, I, I would love to see those two personalities coexist in the same team for like oh, a yeah. decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For those of you that aren't really familiar with Connie Mack, or maybe you've just heard his name in passing and what have you, um, he was known for for being a very businesslike uh, baseball manager for many, many years. He would wear suits to games. He was in yeah. Babe Ruth, obviously, was, you you know, a bit more of a hedonist, um, really into slamming hot dogs and beer. Um, nice. You know, so clashing personalities there. That's also where he got the nickname of Babe was with the Baltimore Orioles club. Oh, because uh, yeah, something's oh, there, there goes that baby. Yeah, there we go. And, and Babe stuck. Oh, that's very that's pretty cool. So, you know, we're feeling a little warmed up here. Got to got to, you know, play around with some nicknames. So let's now go into uh, the return of the international or the name. Let's go into the return of the name game, uh, this time with a bit of an international flair. And we're going to talk about Tuffy Rhodes. Now, when you think of, you know, historically great home run hitters, you definitely think of, of course, Babe Ruth, uh, probably Ted Williams, Barry Bonds, etc. You probably have no idea about this guy, you know, named Tuffy Rhodes, unless you're a big, big fan of <laughs> Japanese baseball or I guess just bubble players from, you know, the 1990s. Um, so we're just going to kick things off. Obviously, Tuffy, not his real name. Uh, he was born Carl Derrick Rhodes in Cincinnati. But how do you think he got the nickname Tuffy, Brandon? Uh, I, I really want to say something to do with Laffy Taffy. <laughs> I, don't, I, I hear Tuffy. <laughs> Obviously, I want to say, oh, he's just a big, tough guy who could, mm-hmm. you know, be injured and still play through because he was tough. But because the Y's at the end, Tuffy, it sounds a little more playful, like Laffy yeah. Taffy. I just don't know how to connect that bridge yet. <laughs> you know, it, you get points for but creativity we got? because that's that's fun. Um, <laughs> no, so he actually, you know, as many nicknames go, he, he got it as a, as a child uh, just because he was a really serious baseball player when he was a kid, you know, very, very serious about his craft, even from a young age, which I think is always kind of funny because, you know, baseball, have fun, you're a kid. Um, but apparently it worked out for him because yeah. he ended up taking it and making a career out of the sport. So what do I know? Um, <laughs> so Tuffy Rhodes, he actually got his start in America, uh, and really had a very underwhelming uh, major league career. So he was drafted in the third round of the 1986 draft by the Houston Astros uh, and only played uh, like parts of six MLB seasons, bounced around a bit. And he was a classic case of those one of those players that was, you know, 
a little too good for the minor leagues, but not good enough to play at the major league level. Uh, as a result, he only hit 224. Good uh, old like, quadruple A players. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, like I said, only at 224, really underwhelming uh, during his MLB tenure, uh, which included a stint with the Cubs and in Boston. So, like I said, he was really a mediocre player. And what I find is really interesting about Tuffy Rhodes is that in his career, he only hit 13 career home runs. And eight of those actually came in a season with the Cubs in 1994, when he became the first player in National League history to actually hit three home runs on opening day, which happened to come against one of the strongest pitchers in baseball at the time, uh, Dwight Gooden. Uh, Wasn't it in three consecutive at-bats as well? It was. It was in three consecutive at-bats. He was the first player in Major League history to lead off a season with a home run in three consecutive at-bats, which is really, really impressive, really cool, but a really odd power surge. You know, he hit only 13 in his career and three of them all came on the same day, right? So really just couldn't cut it at the Major League level, bounced around a bit, uh, played for Chicago, Boston for a little bit, and eventually, you know, he, he, he was granted free agency in 1995. Now, was this the end of his career? It very well could have been. You know, he couldn't play in America, but he really he wanted to keep going. So he ended up signing. He he toughed it out. Okay, (laughs) he toughed it out. That's your one pun for the day. Are you are you happy that you you blew it? And we're not even (laughs) 10 minutes into this thing. I'm very I'm Uh, I'm very pleased with myself. Yeah. So Tuffy Rhodes, uh, he said, I'm not done playing baseball. So he actually goes over to Japan and signs with the Kintetsu Buffaloes of Japan's uh, Nippon Professional Baseball League. And what's interesting here is he goes and he, he goes over there and he actually starts hitting home runs. So in his first season in Japan, he hits 27, which is more than double what he hit in his entire major league career. From 1997 to 1998, he hit 22 home runs in both seasons. But then he hits the he he starts to go on this absolutely unbelievable tear where I don't know if he changed something with his swing, but he just started hitting home runs like, well, I guess it was his job. But <laughs> so 1999, he goes from 22 home runs, goes hits 40 of them, 40 home runs. You know, it's this unprecedented power surge from this guy who's never really been a power hitter in his career. Uh, 2000, he dropped back down a little bit, 25 home runs. People think, OK, maybe this is a one off deal. But in 2001, and this is going to really be the focal point of this story, uh, he ended up tying the uh, the Japanese home run record in a single season that belonged to the legendary Sadaharu O. Oh. Now, for a little bit of background, and I think we're, we're going to end up doing an episode about uh, Sadaharu O oh, uh, later on because he's a really interesting player, oh, yeah. just, just all to himself. So, you know, for those of you who haven't heard of him, think of him like, an athlete in Japan who was kind of on par with Michael Jordan in America or Muhammad Ali, Babe Ruth, like one of these larger than life heroes, uh, you know, in athletics, someone who, you know, young kids were coming up and they were, you know, changing the game because everyone was copying his batting stance. Um, And so he was this, this, this monster home run hitter during the sixties. Um, so he ends up, you know, he sets this home run record for 55 home runs in a single season. And it became the sacred number to where nobody in Japan wanted to see that record broken, especially by a foreign player. And now this number was it was so revered that Hideki Matsui, um, another pro- very prolific Japanese baseball player who you know came came to the States and and was really good here. Uh, he ended up wearing number 55 as an homage to that. <laughs> 
that golden record, which I thought is really, really cool. I, I just love how baseball, wherever it's played, has these golden numbers, whether it's 55 or 714, just these gold standard numbers. It makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. And in researching this, uh, something that I found about this this record race was that uh, I was reading Joe Posnanski did a great profile on O, uh, and he says that, you know, people really don't like to see records broken in sports because we have those golden numbers. Of course, you can you think about Roger Maris, uh, you know, hitting 61 home runs in a season, every, you know, breaking, uh, you know, Babe Ruth's record. And even recently, think about when Barry Bonds breaks you know, or broke Hank Aaron's mm-hmm. overall record. You know, there was a lot of... Um, I don't want to say contentiousness, but it was a little controversial, right? Of course, there was the steroids backstory to that and everything. That goes- contentiousness is definitely the right word for both, you know, Bonds and Maris. That's I'd, right. I'd go with that word, yeah. Right, and I think that's really interesting that you could see somebody doing something that, you know, no one's been able to do before and just be kind of against it, right, even though you're witnessing history. And I think that's a really interesting, I guess, element to fandom. Now, now, now quick tangent – not to get too far from uh, Tuffy Roads here, but why do you think that is? Why do you think we love those numbers? And if somebody comes up that maybe, you know, might rub us slightly the wrong way, we're totally against. Or, you know, yeah. fandom in general or, or whomever is writing the stories, for example. You know, I really think it, it all boils down to people's connections with their favorite players. And I think that, you know, somebody might see... I don't know. I, I'll, I'll give a little personal experience uh, here, a little personal anecdote, yeah. you know, because Jacob deGrom is obviously having an otherworldly season. Like the guy is is pitching like he's not of this earth. And there's a lot of talk about him, you know, winning the MVP. And at first I heard that and I was I was thinking to myself like, oh, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. He's a pitcher. That's super hard. But then I'm thinking I'm like, is this because I. Yeah. Is this because I don't want to see it happen or if because he does win it, you know, one of my favorite players who's won an MVP, Clayton Kershaw, does that cheapen his, you know, his accomplishment, right? Because now somebody else has done it. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's what it all boils down to is you've got a lot of people who grew up with Hank Aaron being the home run king. You know, maybe if they didn't watch him play themselves, maybe their parents and their grandparents told them about, you know, these legends about, you know, this was the greatest baseball player I've ever seen. And then, you know, a new player comes around, Barry Bonds, who's incredibly talented in his own right. And maybe they think, you, you know, it. You know, they, they've got those attachments to the records, those personal connections, I think. And I think that's, yeah, that's that, the it, 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 it seems like it's, yeah, it, it seems like there's a certain time, like maybe a, two decades will pass before people will accept that number as tradition. Like Roger Maris famously was losing his hair when he was pursuing Babe Ruth and, uh, you know, Hank Aaron was getting death threats as he was about to pass uh, Ruth as well. Uh, so I, I just, but now we think back and we love Hank Aaron's record and we didn't like when Barry Bonds was passing it for XYZ reason. Right. So I'm curious what the time frame is to when we look back in, oh, 61. Yeah, that's the right record, even though at the time people weren't happy with 61 Roger Maris. So I'd be curious what that time frame is. Right, exactly. Um, and you can even, I mean, we had, of course, the whole single season home run race with McGuire and Sosa where they hit 70, but mm-hmm. everyone, you know, there's the whole, all the steroid context 
whatever. We're getting a little off base in, in here. In retrospect, yeah. Yeah, in, in retrospect. <laughs> but speaking of home run kings. Speaking, speaking of home, of home run, run kings. kings Mr. bringing Tuffy it Rhodes. back. So Mr. Tuffy Rhodes. So, you know, like I said, you know, he's also got the baggage of, you know, he's not Japanese born. He came over from America. You know, he's a black player and people just didn't want to see a foreign player break this, this sacred record, right? And so this... People had come a little, a couple of players had come close before Tuffy Rhodes did in, in 2001. So in 1985, there's this player, his name was Randy Bass, and he threatened it. He threatened the record and he hit 54 home runs entering the final game of the season, which he was then walked four times on four pitches. Now, very clearly, people weren't throwing him anything to hit, right? They wanted to maintain the record. And that's a little shady, right? If in terms of fairness, and we can, you know, that's the whole conversation. But what I think is really interesting is that the opposing team that he actually he was hitting against that last day was managed by Sadaharu Oh, the guy who owned the record. And there was a, a little investigation into this, probably <laughs> one that should have been a little bit deeper. Uh, but it was ultimately concluded that you know his pitchers, you know, his team, it was all happening without O's knowledge. He didn't have anything to do with it, allegedly. Yeah, you know what. The- the commissioner made his report and it happens. So, oh smart. gosh, <laughs> giving me a flashback. But, you know, this, yeah, I'm sorry. He, he was obviously, you, you know, he didn't really get that chance to hit that, that tying or, or even the, you know, the record breaking home run. So that's 1985. Now, flash forward to 2001. Tuffy Rhodes is one of the most prolific power hitters in the league, in, in NPB. And in 2001, he's on the cusp of breaking this historic record. So he hits his 54th home run on September 12th. Now, for the next two weeks, he didn't he didn't hit another home run because these teams started pitching around him. But with five games left in the season, he hit number 55. All right, so he's, he's tied the record. And at the time, people are asking him about it. And he says, he's like, you know, it feels like nobody in the country wants me to break this record. And that, I mean, might have been might have been somewhat true, right? Because it is this, you know, larger than life number that that people revere at this point. Mm -hmm. So he enters the final five games of the season and he's playing the Dai Hawks, uh, which coincidentally also managed by Sadaharu. Oh, (laughs) little, you know, things are lining up now. Uh, their pitcher. Uh, All right, yeah, we got no, some plot developing. Exactly. So, so he had four at bats, or he came to the plate four times rather, and he just saw two of eighteen pitches for strikes. Now, the Hawks coach uh, Yoshiharu Wakana actually took responsibility for walking him here, and he said, you know, it would actually. He actually said this. He said it would be distasteful to see a foreign player break O's record. So O once again allegedly didn't have anything to do with it, and you know that he was also. But that's also very feasible because he was such a revered person at this time that other people, you know, everyone else didn't want that record to be broken, you know, regardless of whether mm-hmm. or not, oh, you know, wanted to give him a fair shot at it. Right. So now he goes into this final series against the Oryx Blue Wave. Right. And he's he's got 55, but he he actually gets pitches to hit. But at this point, he just couldn't he couldn't get it done. And on the last game of the season, he actually went 0 for 4. So he finished with 2001 with 55 home runs. And it was, you know, to his credit, he owned up to it. He's like, look, I saw some fastballs. I had some pitches to hit. I couldn't get it done. Right. But, you know, it's a consolation prize. You can't be mad because you just tied the all-time record. Exactly. Exactly. He tied the all-time record. And, you know, hitting home runs is really, really hard, uh, even if you have 55 of them. But he, as a consolation prize, he won the MVP in the Pacific League that year in 2001. 
And what I think is almost even, I mean, maybe not cooler, but he, he goes on this power tear, right? The next three seasons, he hits uh, 45 or more home runs. And he actually hits 51 home runs again in 2003. Uh, he would go on to hit 273 more in his, in, in his career in Japan. And he retires after 13 seasons as the all-time NPB home run leader among foreign-born players. And I think he's 13th overall, overall right now with 464. Now, as far as that that mystical record goes, it actually was broken in 2013 when uh, Vladimir Ballantin actually uh, hit 60 home runs, uh, shattering the record. So, right, like, like, you know, it, it took a long time, but eventually people got there. But what's interesting about that is that the league actually came out and admitted to using juiced balls in 2013, and the commissioner actually resigned from the scandal. So there's there's even a little bit of... You know, I'm, I'm, I guarantee, you know, there's people in Japan who are thinking, you know, like, you know, it's not legitimate because there are juice balls in 2013 for the broken record season. So there's a lot of there's layers to this, this record, which I think is makes it one of the more interesting stories of its kind. Right? Sounds really familiar to what we're used to. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. The, ahead of the curve. As, as far as the asterisks over home run battles. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And, and, you know, everyone's going to have generational, you're going to, this is my home run champion, right? Um, you know, Chris Davis from, from 2015 with the Orioles. That's my home. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so he ends very productive 13 season, uh, you know, career in Japan, even though he couldn't really get it going in, in America. And he did, he did try one more time, uh, in 2006, he, he signed with the Reds for a little bit, uh, but was released after about a month. So, End, end of his career, um, very productive, one of the best power hitters in Japanese baseball history. Now, you would think that that would translate into Hall of Fame votes in Japan, but he actually only garnered 28.8% of the vote in 2020. Similar to America, you need 75% to be enshrined. And that was actually down from his high of 29.6% in 2019. And so there's also a little bit of a caveat of, you know, his relationship with the media was, wasn't always the best. Um, you know, that's a lot of what we hear about, you know, Barry Bonds uh, over here. And so he, you know, he's, he's locked out of the mm-hmm. hall of fame in Japan for now. Um, so that's kind of an odd end to the story <laughs> because he, he was one of the best power hitters in Japanese baseball history. And then just, just for a tie off here, think of, if you need like an American MLB player comparison uh, for how well he played in Japan, you could think of one uh, of Lance Berkman in America um, or like Juan Soto with a slightly worse average. Juan Soto through only his first three seasons, of course. Uh, but if, if you just need some <laughs> someone to kind of compare against, you know, how good this uh, Tuffy Rhodes was in Japan. Um, so that is is one of baseball's more interesting stories, I think. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Now, Brandon is going to take us into the pickle jar. Uh, so what's what's our our pickle for today? Is that something that we say? <laughs> what's our word? <laughs> yeah. So like you said, it's time to reach into the pickle jar. Or you said it two seconds ago. I already forgot. But yeah, we're getting a daily pickle today, <laughs> or weekly pickle, I suppose. Oh, and <laughs> most unhinged. Fun. And our pickle jar today, yes. Our pickle jar today is. I guess we should say what it is. Uh, remember, we're going over odd baseball terminologies that maybe it's not a little bit unusual because we have rich vernacular in this sport. And so today we're talking about Uncle Charlie's. Noah, yes. do you have any idea what the uh, Uncle Charlie's are? I do. Uh, do you want me to oh, you do. give my, yeah, give my definition? Okay, so an Uncle Knock Charlie. 
Uncle Charlie's a curveball. Bingo. Now, do you know where Uncle Charlie's comes from? Uncle, I have no idea. I'm assuming it's some weird uh, announcer slang that popped up in like you know in the 1920s. Uh, so it is like the early 1900s, late 1800s is kind of ish. Okay. Uh, so it turns out um, it's named after former Harvard president Charles Eliot, um, or it may be um, named after Charles Eliot Norton, who is a professor at Harvard. So one of the two. Uh, but what he was doing is he, he he was watching you know the baseball team pitch or play, and they kept getting beat because his other team had a curveball. And the <laughs> famous quote, uh, if you go watch you know Ken Burns uh, baseball, this quote's in there. Um, one of the Charlies said, "Well, this year I'm told the team did well because one pitcher had the fine curveball. I understand that the curveball is thrown with a deliberate attempt to deceive. Surely this is not an ability we should want to foster here at Harvard." <laughs> it's just so pretentious. And I love that after this pretentious statement of we don't want to deceive the people with this curveball, they just call it, you know what? Let's name this pitch the Uncle Charlie. <laughs> That's super funny. And I think it, it, it's kind of another one of those baseball stories where historically, you know, new things are coming out, new fun ideas. And, you know, when they initially kind of become popularized, you know, baseball kind of recoils a little bit you know and i think that's incredibly yeah. pretentious coming from harvard like you know we don't want to deceive people up <laughs> there come on it's it's baseball but i, I yeah that's, yeah, that's and I, you, you kind of think at this point um either charlie as they, they were older folks at the time uh they were so used to baseball being played underhand and you know the batter could, right. could ask to win a high pitch or a low pitch so only for about 20 years at this point could pitchers actually throw overhand so that's maybe their mind is still thinking well that's cheating anyway right right that's yeah, pretty so, cool. Yeah, so uh, Uncle Charlie's, the pickle jar. And uh, now we're going to switch over to a player who I think had some good Uncle Charlie's, uh, Doc Ellis, who is one of the most fantastic personalities of the 1970s in baseball. And if you're one of the best personalities in baseball during the 70s, that means you're going to be one of the best personalities of all time, just because the 70s were an incredible time for the sport. Um, so Doc Ellis is very famous for one odd feat. Uh, that is that he threw baseball's first LSD-assisted no-hitter. <laughs> first? Uh, so, you, say, you say first like there there have been more. Have <laughs> I, I want to say that's our only LSD no-hitter, right? <laughs> That we that's know probably, of, I guess. Uh, probably the first, yeah, first and only. That's that's a very yeah. good, yeah. <laughs> so so this story is great, and we'll talk much more about Doculus right after this. But I want to start with this. Um, so as as it goes, uh, they were on the California road trip. He was playing with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and they were going through uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, San Diego, and he had friends that lived in San Diego. So when they're up in San Francisco, he asked, "Hey." Can I go down to San Diego and see my buddies? And he was having a decent year at this time. It was his third year in the league. And so, getting some dogs in the background there. <laughs> Give me one moment. They like the story. That's what it is. Okay. That was a concerning <laughs> silence. <laughs> it was. It, it, it went off very quickly. All right, so uh, he asked, sorry about the dogs in the background. Uh, he asked the uh, owners if he can go down and see some friends in San Diego. So they said, absolutely. 
Uh, but he was driving down there, and during his drive, he timed it just right, where if he took a hit of acid, it would take effect the moment he steps in the house. And that's, so that's what he does. And so the next two days is lost in the absolute haze between LSD, different drugs and alcohol. They're, they're, you know, they're doing their own thing. And then at some point he wakes up because his, his buddy, you know, shakes him up and says, Hey, you got a game to go to. And he goes, No, it's not until Friday. And his friend goes, It is Friday. Oh, no. What? Yeah. So at 2 p.m., uh, the friends kind of rally around him to get him to the airport, fly out to San Francisco, and he arrives 90 minutes before his first pitch. And he is still, uh, according to him, feeling the effects of LSD. Um, so he tries to take some other drugs at the time to even it out, but it does not work. Uh, so he's up on the mound throwing, and he's saying that the ball feels like it's changing sizes. <laughs> it starts from a golf ball, a little small golf ball, pea-sized thing, and then balloons to a beach ball as he's trying to throw it. Uh, so he's not, not actually sure where it's going because as he's throwing it, he's aiming literally down a rainbow lane, he says. <laughs> oh man. Uh he doesn't yeah, he doesn't really remember much of the early game. Uh but then around the fourth inning he starts hallucinating as well. And so he thinks that Richard Nixon is the home plate umpire and Jimi Hendrix is the batter swinging with a guitar. <laughs> uh, so he is just gone. But somehow 9 innings later, he walks eight guys, but he gets a no-hitter. And it has gone down in baseball lore this game. Right, and it's uh, just just like hearing these hallucinate—excuse me, hearing his hallucinations that he's describing about you know Richard Nixon and Jimi Hendrix. Like this has to be one of the most period stories that baseball has in terms of like you know like late sixties, early seventies. Oh, yeah. You know, like it, it's just incredibly on brand, I guess for 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 that 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 time period. Oh, you're exactly right, and um, you know we mentioned his boisterous uh, personality. Well, yeah, he, he was very, obviously, loud about this no-hitter. He was very proud of his achievements in baseball. And in 1971, the following year, he was having a great season. And so he was named to the All-Star team. And that was the very first year that two African-American pitchers started the game. Uh, but that almost didn't happen uh, because uh, Doc Ellis was convinced that they wouldn't start uh, two people of color on the mound at the same time. So he went out to the media and said, uh, there's no way they're going to start two brothers in the same game. I guarantee it. Uh-huh. And Sparky Anderson was the, the all-star manager. So he goes, okay, go do it. So it was <laughs> him and by the blue. Uh, that was also the game where Reggie Jackson hit the home run off of Doc Ellis and hit right. the light tower. <laughs> mm. Wow. But overall, he was a solid pitcher for his career. Um, uh, ERA plus 104, so he was above average pitcher. Uh, best season was solid, 125 ERA plus, um, all-star, Cy Young running, all that good stuff. And some other moments he had, um, the owner of the Pirates got mad at uh, Doc Ellis because he wore curlers in, the, in his hair as warming up. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just you know the time. You put curlers in your hair, bring them out to look good. Uh, so they got in a little tussle about that. And it turns out he didn't put curlers in the hair just because he liked the look. He put them in his hair because he would sweat more. And so he could reach back to the back of his head uh, and use like a spitball essentially during the game. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so overall won 138 games, pitched over 2,000 innings, had some arm troubles at the end of his uh, career. So kind of bounced around a little bit. Um, however, for every one of those 2,000 innings, uh, according to him, he never pitched a game sober. 
Uh, oh, so wow. yeah, it is fun to talk about the LSD no hitter, but at the same time, yeah, he you know has a deep into an addiction as well. Yeah, that's, um, that's sad. It's uh, odd. Yeah. Um, so right after he retired, he found himself again in that funk, but there was no baseball as an outlet, and he knew he was in deep. He knew he had the problem. Uh, so he actually called a former pitcher Don Newcomb and asked for help. And and so after calling Don, um, you know, he uh, Doc Ellis called his sister, said, "Hey, come to my house. Bring one more bottle bottle of vodka because it's the last bottle I'll ever have." He does that, and then for the next forty five days, he stays at the rehab clinic. And forty five days is notable because that's two weeks longer than insurance actually paid for. So he stayed longer in rehab because he was scared of relapsing. That's right. kind of how serious it was. Uh, but once he got out, he kind of redefined his life from this pitcher who was constantly on some kind of drug or alcohol while pitching and went to go study psychology at the University of Irvine and became a substance abuse counselor. And he used his newfound knowledge and you know passion and experience uh, to help other ballplayers, to help prisoners, uh, those less fortunate, to help overcome their addiction. So he really dedicated his life to that. He, for the reason he got famous, he's right. now trying to kind of undo some of that culture. And then he even tried to become the head of Major League Baseball's drug treatment program in the 90s. Uh, but during his playing career, he rubbed a lot of owners and managers and, you know, high up people the wrong way. So they shot him down for that. But for the rest of his life, that was his dedication, was just helping others that experience the same addiction he did. So while the LSD no-hitter is a fantastic story in baseball's lore, uh, the outcome of being able to help more people and being aware of you know addiction, that in itself is another powerful story as well. Yeah, and I think I think that's very well put because a lot of these, you know, there's this is obviously not the only story of player oh, no. pitching while inebriated or on drugs or whatever. But it's this is a really it's really cool how he was able to kind of come around and, and turn his life around to help other people after after everything that he went through. And yeah, because so many stories, you know, <laughs> when he started, you know, using drugs that much, yeah. you know, in the you know, 20s and 30s, they don't end well. Uh, yeah. But he lived a good a good life and helped as many people as he could. Yeah, that'll do it uh, just about for Doc Ellis. There is a documentary out. Um, was it Doc Ellis's No No? I'm pretty uh, sure it's called the it really quick. the Doc Umentary. Like that's not oh, a pun. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> yeah, we can yeah, we can put exactly that in the notes. You're right. Yeah, right. but uh, Doc Ellis, one of one of baseball's uh, more colorful characters, and and really a. a a, a nice ending on on what had been a rocky mm-hmm. story at points. Um, now we're going to shift into something a little different. So Brandon actually, he sent me photos last week, or I guess earlier this week, <laughs> about, um, you know, he, he was at a baseball stadium. He was actually at the Oklahoma City Dodgers Stadium, uh, well, out in Oklahoma City. So Brandon, I have never been there. But yep. as a connoisseur of minor league baseball and minor league uh, stadiums, how was what was your experience like and how had that differed from other stadiums that you have that you've been to? So Oklahoma City Stadium, it's it's kind of tucked into its downtown area. Like you can walk by it and not really know it's there, um, except the street names. Uh, it's Mickey Mantle Drive and Joe Carter Avenue. Uh, so, you know, that's a little more inconspicuous, inconspicuous. <laughs> uh, there is there are statues out there of uh, Johnny Bench as well. And it's really a beautiful brick stadium. So you walk in there, there was these beautiful brick buildings, brick hotel behind it. 
you know, great views and it's small and uh, what, what's the word you typically use with smaller stadiums? It's small and coffee um, confines, we'll call them. Oh, um, yeah. There's a yeah. word. Yeah. There's a I word that's slipping, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very cozy. Well, yeah, it's a lot. Cozy. Cozy is a good cozy. one. Yeah. It's like a it's like a spring training stadium. Uh, there aren't, there's not an upper deck, you know, there's a second deck, but there's only a couple seats out there. There are lawn seats, uh, people walking the cheap beers and cheap hot dogs. It's a great time. It's very different atmosphere from major league baseball. It just kind of seems like those stadiums are trying to present themselves as professional and fantastic. Right. Or as minor league stadiums, they can lean into the city and say, you know what? We're here for fun. Let's have a good time. Exactly. And so that's kind of what that stadium felt like. It's you know, it's here. Uh, we're in the city. We know what we're about. Let's have a good time here. Yeah, and I I really enjoy. I've been to you know a, a couple of of minor league stadiums as well, and I I really enjoy that kind of because you get the more of a fan experience. You get a lot of you know there's kids running the bases sometimes even between mm-hmm. innings. They've got all the I mean mascots that are just ridiculous. I mean just the team names are ridiculous. You've got the you know the Montgomery Rocket Biscuits, City Trash Pandas, the Trash Pandas. I went to the, the minor pandas. leagues. The minor league stadium I went to the most was uh, also. Dodgers affiliated the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes, uh, which were a, an A ball team, and they had two mascots. I think it was Tremor and something else, but they were like these 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 dinosaur themed mascots. They leaned into the whole earthquake kind of you know imagery. It was Excellent. just a really cool experience because Excellent. what's cool about minor league games is one they're much much less expensive than major league uh, stadiums. At least you know the ones I've been to, Dodger games are much more expensive, but they. Um, but what's really cool is how close you feel and how close you feel to the players and to the action. And you you get to see all these up-and-coming prospects. Intimate. Very intimate. That's intimate a great was word. was the word I was looking for. Exactly. And, <laughs> you know, you look around the stadium and you can get, like, tickets that are right behind home plate for, you know. I mean, I, I had never sat right behind home plate until I had gone to a minor league baseball game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the teams and the stadiums, they they don't take themselves, uh, certainly players take themselves as seriously as anybody, uh, yeah. but kind of the stadium doesn't necessarily take itself as seriously. Um, so I remember seeing a game, um, I think it was up in Eugene Emeralds, I want to say, uh, their mm-hmm. single A team up there. And they picked one player of the opposing team for the beer batter. And what happened here is if the beer batter strikes out, the entire stadium uh, gets free beer. <laughs> and so when this guy came up, every single person who wasn't really paying attention to the game, they're just out there having right. a good time with their families or with their friends. But when this poor player came up, he was mercilessly booed like he was a huge <laughs> Astro. It was fabulous. And you know what happened? He struck out three times that day. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> I, I hope it was like a top prospect and not some guy, you know, hitting like eighth trying to. You know, trying to right. just he was like, stay on the team. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be a good bonus baby who has yeah. a long career ahead of him. Yeah. But just for this one day, that's super funny. Down <laughs> when when literally everyone in the park wants to see you fail, that's that's kind of wild. I I love those. But no, uh, it's yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say like like those promotions are great, and they're even better with beer uh, involved because you know obviously fans start to drink, and it, you know. <laughs> I remember when I worked for the San Luis Obispo Blues, which is a California Collegiate League team, uh, so summer ball, um, and we had a promotion where whenever the home team the blues whenever they scored uh beer i want to say it went it became like half off or something and the way the stadium was built was a lot of the seating you know you had 
typical you know chairs seats behind home plate but then you had this grass little like berm right this little hill uh that went up and you had to go up the hill to get to the beer so whenever whenever you get like a runner in scoring position on on second or third base you could kind of just feel the energy get (laughs) tense in the ballpark and you could kind of see people kind of hanging out by the line because obviously they don't want to get in line yet because they don't want to pay, pay full price for beer. Uh, so they, they just kind of like loiter around the line. And then when they'd score, especially towards the later innings when people have had a few, you would just see this mob of middle-aged fans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is college town, so you'd have some college kids there too. But it was mostly like like parents there with their kids, you know, a lot of dads just hustling up this, this hill before the line gets long. And you'd see, you know, it's grass and so people would yes. slip and, and, and face plant and stuff. And it was just a bunch of drunk, just a wave of drunk adults rushing to get beer. It was, they, they looked like, you know, like toddlers at a pinata uh, party, right? It was, it was just one of the funniest baseball experiences yeah. I've had. <laughs> this is the, the I, magic I, of I know small... you all have known this story. We'll have, mm-hmm. we'll have to talk about this story in a later episode, but that reminds me of, you know, the free or discounted beer and people rushing towards it, uh, towards ah. Tiger Stadium in the 70s when they had Disco Demolition Day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to talk about that in a later episode because it is a full episode. Uh, but go and look that up if you haven't seen the pictures when they, Tiger Stadium causes a riot uh, for, blowing up um, disco albums and offering nickel beer. Yeah, 10 cent beer night, one of the most infamous yeah. days in baseball history. <laughs> um, so that that'll roughly do it uh, to tie things up here. Uh, go sport minor league baseball. Go go watch a minor league game um, if especially if you haven't been Who, to one. Yeah, who's the nearest minor league team near you because you're in LA, which is a little difficult. Near me. Honestly, there's I mean, I I was going to say there's so many minor league teams. It's kind of hard, but there, there are fewer now, of course, that they've contracted them yeah. a bit off of the top. I, I'd honestly have to look that up because, um, okay. yeah, I, I have another Los Angeles affiliate team near me with the Salt Lake City Bees. That's, That's right. The Los Angeles Angels uh, AAA right. affiliate. So I'll go there to see them this season. Yeah, and 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 it's 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 really a great time because you get to meet these players that are at the start of their careers, and you know they'll take photos with you. They're just really they're really excited to be recognized by fans and stuff, and kind of, kind of yeah, get get a taste of that stardom that they all want in the minor leagues to make that jump. And this is kind of especially in AAA uh, when a lot of the big league guys are coming down for rehab and mingling for the first time with these AAA players. It's a big moment for, for those players as well. Uh, so it, yeah. it definitely rubs off on the fans and the atmosphere. Strong and, recommend. And one last point before we go is is you're exactly right. Like when you get sometimes you'll get to see a you know a star player do a rehab assignment in the minor leagues, and it's such a rare time that you get to be so close to somebody like you know Mike Trout or, or you know one of those superstars mm-hmm. that normally you might not see you know except from you know nosebleed seats or something, and you can be right there just because of how cozy the fields are. Um, so anyway, go check out some minor league baseball. Um, sport minor league players let's let's get them paid but that will just about wrap it up for us tonight yes please a uh, little little bit of everything uh we had some some japanese baseball we had lsd no hitter and of course we had the uncle charlie in some minor league baseball there so i had a great time how about yourself brandon i always have a great time always with you though it's fantastic just, just gonna say yeah no i it was i was miserable for the last 40 minutes um <laughs> oh terrible time i regret right. every moment honestly now that we're just right. telling the truth i can't wait for this episode <laughs> to be over because that means we're that much closer to doing the next episode i'm excited i'm excited for the next one 
Um, so if you like what you're hearing, please follow along with us on Twitter at shorthopspl. Follow Brandon at BD Riddle and myself at Noah A. Scott six. Of course, you can always subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts. Um, so to make sure you don't miss an episode. Um, so for Brandon Riddle, I'm Noah Scott, and this has been the Short Hops and Tall Tales podcast. See you next time.